This episode of Promised Land uses audio clips that contain language and subject matter that are graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. I've never lied to you. Your Bible is full of lies. Your sky god makes no sense. If he was all perfect, why don't he come down and do something? If he can heal everybody in a minute, why doesn't he heal them all? Why do he make all these different races to fight and to kill? Why does he bring some into the world born blind? America, 1973. Christian America. Jehovah's America. Bible America, 1973. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain by following me. Why don't you deny yourself? Why don't you deny yourself? Why don't you say yes to this cause and no to that slave system? I thank you. I thank you. I thank you because my words are spirit and my words are life. This is a revolution that will heal you. This is a father that will save you. This is one that will shepherd you through every storm. In March 1976, Moscone offered Jim Jones a seat on the Human Rights Commission. Years earlier, when Jones was on the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission, he was able to accomplish great things and shine a light on himself because of it. But to have a seat in San Francisco, he would only be one of many working for the greater good. There was no way for him to be able to stand out. Jones was offended that this was the position offered to him, instead of being offered something like a seat on the city board. He turned down this offer and hoped that Moscone would eventually see the worth of what the temple did for him and offer a better position. Meanwhile, Jones had other things that kept his interest, like a series of major defections. In summer of 1976, Greystone decided that she grew tired of the People's Temple and their leader. On July 4th, she and another member, Walter Jones, snuck away while everyone was busy with the holiday celebration. She contacted Jones and explained to him why she chose to leave, and asked to arrange some kind of joint custody with their son, John Victor. Grace was allowed to return for a service at the People's Temple in September, where she was able to spend time with her son after she met with Jones and Tim Stone. According to documents, Grace signed papers stating she gave her permission for her son to be taken to Guyana and releasing Jones in the People's Temple of any wrongdoing to keep negotiations with Jones open in hopes to see John Victor more. Tim Stone thought many times of defecting, but he chose to continue in the temple as even though he was not John Victor's biological father, he viewed him as a son just the same and wanted to stay close to him. Tim Stone truly didn't believe that Jones would actually live in Guyana, as he had too much happening in the States, so he agreed to allow Jones to send John Victor to Jonestown, in the care of Temple women who were already a part of raising him. John Victor was sent with the first few dozen members to Jonestown in September 1976. The death threats, nobody leaves this church without dying. He had this one woman very severely beaten. And 
The beatings never did sit well with me. I can remember running to the farthest point in the church in San Francisco and just cringing because, you know, as these people were beaten, we were instructed to laugh and to smile. And if we didn't, we would be the next one to be beaten. I stayed just to be, because I had this son. And it dawned on me that I really didn't have him. I didn't have him physically, I didn't have him mentally. And I truly thought that I would be killed. And I got to the point, well, you know, I would rather be dead than to live like this. I just could not handle it anymore. Other defections happened that summer as well. Neva Sly defected, leaving behind her husband and son after being severely beaten for continuing to smoke cigarettes. Temple members were able to track her down and followed her everywhere, even confronting her while she was out to dinner at a restaurant, reminding her that father knew everything she did and everywhere she went. Joy Shaw left after growing tired of always being questioned by the planning commission. Her husband, Bob Houston, and Jim Jones contacted her, trying to get her to come back to the People's Temple, but she refused to accept their offers. On October 4th, 1976, Bob Houston was found dead in a railroad yard, crushed to death by a train. This troubled some temple members as Jones liked to preach about how terrible things would happen to those who chose to leave, because they would also be leaving his protection. Bob's father, Sam, was a photographer for the Associated Press and was friendly with some top politicians because of this. One in particular was a U.S. congressman named Leo Ryan. Sam Houston went to Congressman Ryan with his concerns about Jim Jones, and Leo Ryan was intrigued. He assured Sam that as soon as he finished other pressing matters, that he would absolutely gather his staff and take a deeper look into People's Temple. Jones was already paranoid of outside government surveillance. He would often talk of different ideas how they could fight back against their enemies if the situation presented itself. So they would plan for a grand revolutionary statement to show their enemies they would not back down, they would go down in history for their defiant gesture. Some ideas Jones came up with, other than mass suicide, were linking up with other revolutionaries across the world. The atomic bomb he claimed to have down in Mexico, or even have Maria Kitsaris take up flight school to learn how to fly a plane so she and a couple hundred temple members could crash the plane to show that they would rather die than submit to the American government. According to Terry Buford, quote, this was never going to be like 9-11, crashing into a building and killing innocent people. We were always going to be the ones who died. Jones always ready to kill us. That whole group suicide idea didn't start in Guyana. Jones's paranoia wasn't the only thing growing. His bizarre sermons were also becoming more and more common. While his original sermons back in Indiana spoke of him not being God, they were now subjected to sermons of him claiming he was an extraterrestrial being, that he was the greatest on the planet, and that only he could come down to Earth. Let us get out of our minds all references to stars, religion, superstition, signs and symbols. I am a scientific socialist. I do have an extra dimension of materialism in my mind. It enables me to heal, to protect, to predict earthquakes. I predict an earthquake to San Francisco and have them call it all around. The second one that came yesterday to Los Angeles to try to get these crazy medlocks to think. <laughs> 
But let us not think that there is any science, truth, or veracity in astrology, occultism, mysticism. It is a counter-revolutionary idea and must be removed from our thinking. Extraterrestrials encounter U.S. elite. There's too much interest in some kind of modern reformist, revisionist, communist, an interest in extraterrestrial activity and aspects of the psychic or paranormal. There's a film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, a film written and directed by Steven Spielberg, Columbia Pictures release. The content and social function of science fiction are inevitably shaped, as all cultural phenomena are, by the ideological compulsions of the prevailing class relations. In the capitalist West, this means that by and large science fiction serves to promote the political values and social urgencies of monopoly capitalism. That it does so frequently in the guise of pure entertainment or sheer speculation on what the future might bring. Sometimes even the guise of a withering critique of present-day capitalist society, see the novels of Pohl, P-O-H-L, and Kornbluth, K-O-R-N-B-L-U-T-H, for example, merely makes it more difficult to spot at times. Now that the movies and TV are on the verge of a science fiction boom, science fiction boom, and even so-called revisionist communists are interested in the fads of the occult, it's time to pay a little more attention to the stuff. Even with the defections, 1976 seemed to be a great year in accomplishments for Jones. He knew that Nevisly and Joy Shaw were intimidated enough from the temple that they would never say anything against Jones, and Greystone was dealt with and John Victor was safely in Jonestown. Construction was still underway in Jonestown when Jones decided to deliver a huge blow to Marstlin. He explained to her that he and the kids were going to be moving to Guyana without her. She was to stay back in the States to oversee the temple in California. This crushed Marceline, and she asked Jones if she could go to therapy. He agreed, and Marceline started to see a psychiatrist. Unknown to Marceline, this psychiatrist reported back to Jones about everything she said. Jones then chose to tell Marceline's mother, Charlotte, that Marceline was very troubled, so much so that her psychiatrist felt it was best to separate Marceline from her children. Through doing this, Jones was able to have significant leverage to hold over Marceline. In March of 1976, San Francisco Chronicle reporter Herb Kane wrote his first article on People's Temple and Jim Jones. Herb Kane was known for writing about the most prominent people in San Francisco. He wrote about how Jim Jones would go out to dinner with top politicians, how he and the People's Temple supported many great local causes. When Herb Cain writes about a person, it almost guarantees they will become a local celebrity. And this held true for Jim Jones, as Cain continued to write about People's Temple regularly. So today we honor him, not because of the fact that he long ago decided to be a minister of the gospel, but because of the fact that in the implementation of this life direction. He has lifted out his hand to help 
the oppressed, the distraught, the lost, and every opportunity, every minute of the day, he seeks for new opportunities to reach out and touch somebody. So today we honor Reverend Jim Jones, a man who I'm honored to call a friend. Because he has shown profound concern for the children of the world. And no man can do any more than to open up his hearth or to place under his roof the children of God of all colors, all creeds, and all religions. We honor him because he understands that in a world as troubled and as distraught as the present day, that there are many people who are unable to face the trials, the tribulations, the frustrations of living, and who stray away and who seek temporary safety and flighty comfort in the destructive mechanizations of narcotics. But he has found an opportunity to snatch from the living hell of narcotics hundreds and scores of young people and made their lives meaningful. Jones announced to his members on September 25, 1976, that there would be a dinner honoring Jim Jones held at the San Francisco Temple, where there would be many political leaders in attendance to pay tribute to their leader for his many accomplishments. Each member was to pay $20 admission, as well as sell tickets to the public. Jones expected it to be a sold-out dinner, and with Marcelin's words of encouragement, members were able to fill every seat. Prominent political officials attended the dinner, including Mayor Moscone. Jones was presented with a certificate of honor, which stated, quote, in recognition of his guidance and inspiration in establishing the many humanitarian programs in People's Temple, and in deep appreciation for his tireless and invaluable contributions to all people of the Bay Area. I've been campaigning almost continuously since April of last year. One of the things that I have learned is that people everywhere are the same. They may live in different parts of the country. They may make their living a different way, but they share the same things. And they don't want anything selfish from government, but they do want government that's fair. Jimmy is honest and unselfish and truly concerned about the country. I think he'll be a great president. The 1976 presidential campaign was well underway, 
and Jones received word that Democrat Jimmy Carter's wife, Rosalind Carter, was going to be in San Francisco and requested a meeting with Jim Jones. He was asked to bring some of his members along with him to help fill seats, and he agreed as long as he was able to sit on stage near Mrs. Carter and he was allowed to speak. The event went accordingly, and Jones was able to speak privately with Mrs. Carter for a short time, which was more a courtesy from Mrs. Carter than anything of substance. Jones flaunted to his members at the next temple service that Jimmy Carter was considering appointing him the U.S. Ambassador of Guyana, though nothing was actually ever mentioned of this. After Carter won the election, Jones wrote to the First Lady giving some advice on new policies that should be in effect. Mrs. Carter wrote a short cordial letter back to Jones thanking him for the letter, that she enjoyed meeting him, and that he should meet with her sister-in-law, evangelist Ruth Carter Stapleton. For the Carters, that was business closed with Jim Jones, but for Jones, it was bragging rights to show Guyanese officials the next time they would meet. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. A few weeks after Jones's dinner, Mayor Moscone offered Jones a place on the City Housing Authority, which Jones accepted. Jones was able to change Housing Authority meetings from once doll gatherings, where only members attended, to a filled room of Temple members applauding every word he said. Temple Press started writing articles about the mistreatment of the poor and minorities in San Francisco and soon got local reporters interested on what the Housing Authority was doing. Moscone saw the light shown on the Housing Authority by Jones and decided to name him the chairman. Immediately, the Housing Authority voted to use over $1 million in funds to acquire an international hotel that had been turned into a home for the elderly. The building was due to be torn down, all residents evicted, and turned into a more profitable building. Courts were not changing their minds about the building being deconstructed. Though Jones orchestrated large marches in front of the building, he was unsuccessful in saving the elderly people from being evicted from their homes. But this failure also put Jones in the limelight from the press as being the spokesman for those less fortunate. Maria Katsaris' father, Stephen Katsaris, started complaining to friends that his daughter was being held captive by People's Temple. When word began to spread and eventually got to Jones, he called a planning commission meeting to figure out a way to deflect these accusations. After the meeting, the decision was unanimous. If Stephen Katsaris would decide to reach out to government officials or the press for help, Maria would make a public statement that her father sexually molested her. This also boosted Jones's ego even more knowing that she was willing to ruin her own father's life just to protect People's Temple and Jim Jones. In December of 1976, Jones, Tim Stone, and Lieutenant Governor Damali traveled to Guyana to meet with Prime Minister Burnham. Jones bragged about his relationship with the American president and non-verbally made it clear to Burnham that he should be treated as a fellow head of state, which Burnham did. 
When they arrive back in the States, Stone remembers Jones saying, quote, this has been our year of ascendancy. 1976 really was the year for People's Temple and Jim Jones, but things were going to be very different the following year. 1977 did not start off as Jones expected. His daughter Suzanne and her husband, Mike Cartmel, had separated. Jones was furious with his daughter as he believed that a daughter should always obey her father's wishes. And because she went against the arranged marriage, both her and Mike Cartmel were utter disappointments to him. Suzanne wasn't the only family member to disappoint Jones during this time. Marceline's health had started to break down in 1977. While visiting her parents in Indiana, she had to be hospitalized for several weeks due to severe respiratory issues. Back in California, her doctors urged her to quit her health agency job. This was not good for Jones as Temple members believed that the Jones family lived strictly off Marceline's income. With her no longer employed, the Temple board voted an immediate $30,000 a year salary for Jones who made sure he accepted this salary reluctantly. Marceline further angered Jones by helping their son Stephen find an apartment alone rather than living communally with other Temple members. Jones felt that Stephen had too much independence already and decided it was in Stephen's best interest to be sent to Jonestown. On February 18th, Mike Cartmel defected from People's Temple and around the same time, Grace Stone filed for divorce from Tim Stone and filed for custody of their son, John Victor. Jones responded by sending Tim Stone to Jonestown where he could be isolated from the US court system and be closer to John Victor. Then Jones's daughter, Suzanne, defected from People's Temple and refused any and all contact with him. Something on the positive side for Jim Jones. Jonestown construction was doing great. Cabins were being built to hold families of four with no need for kitchens as meals would be eaten together as a community and no need for bathrooms as communal outhouses and showers were installed. Guyanese inspectors, as well as officials from the American Embassy, would frequently check on the settlement in Jonestown. One embassy chief reported, quote, the people talked as they were very enthusiastic about their work and from outward appearances seemed happy enough. There were a number of children who acted normally and who accompanied my own children down to a large well-built cage to see their chimpanzee, which had been brought from California. This chimpanzee being Mr. Muggs, one of Jonestown's first residents. Jonestown was intended to be a self-sustaining refuge for the people of People's Temple. But first it was a refuge for the temple's most troubled members. Tom Grubbs and Don Beck were sent over to Jonestown to help set up classrooms, and even though Guyana required schools to conform to their own educational system, Jonestown did not. Gene Chaikin, the now acting Temple attorney, had legal guardians sign permission papers allowing their kids to go to Jonestown. Courts required annual reviews for custody matters, but with the kids out of the country, Chaikin made it to where courts would have to pay to see these children return to the U.S. for reviews to happen, which they weren't going to do. Chaikin assured Jones that any possibility of charges for, quote, stealing children was not going to happen, but he was wrong. Joseph Mazur was a private investigator hired by parents who had allowed their children to be brought into the temple. It didn't take long for him to discover Grace Stone her divorce, and her custody case. Elmer and Deanna Myrtle 
were still actively trying to make a case against People's Temple. They spoke with a Treasury Department agent and correctly accused People's Temple of smuggling weapons hidden inside compartments in supply crates being sent to Jonestown, as well as forging passports for Temple members to travel to Guyana. The U.S. Customs Service launched an investigation into these accusations, but Jones was tipped off before the investigation began and halted all weapons transportation until the investigation was closed due to no evidence. John Barba Galata, the defeated mayor candidate, was still not happy with how Moscone won the election due to People's Temple members. He heard about the foster children being taken to Jonestown and that public funds provided for care of these children was being used by the temple instead of for the children. Marshall Kilduff, a San Francisco Chronicle reporter, took interest in Barbara Galata's claims and felt it was worth looking into further. Though the Chronicle turned down Kilduff's idea, New West Magazine decided to hire Kilduff as a freelance writer for his article. Jones was alerted at once of the potential article, and though he tried to convince New West of not releasing this article, it was given the green light and Kilduff began his investigations. I suppose we ought to start at, at the beginning, and maybe that would be with you, Phil. You, you, as, as Assemblyman Brown said, it was the first serious uh, word that something was wrong at People's Temple came from your article. Why do you think it, uh, it had taken that long if all of these things had been going on? Well, uh, in part because the Reverend Jones uh, convinced members of the, the temple, both inside and, and those who had left, that it would be dangerous for them to talk to the press. Uh, the very example the assemblyman mentioned, the Fresno Four, uh, where they had an awards dinner. He, in point of fact, told members of the temple that he, through that procedure, had bought off the press. He uh, uh, had earlier, in 1974, 1973, made a series of contributions for the protection of the First Amendment. They were small change stuff, and it was, it was, it was totally uh, unserious. I mean, there was never any attempt. Nobody, none of the papers thought it was a bribe. But Jones told his members that it was. So they were fearful of the press. He also told them that he had, he had information on all the public officials in the city of New York, uh, the city of uh, San Francisco, rather, and, and that, uh, that he was going to use that information. And then for that reason, these public officials were in his pocket. None the of this was true. Question, uh, one question I have, Phil. Do you think that uh, public officials who, who uh, sought support and got support from the Reverend Jones should have known more about him than they did? You heard uh, Willie's explanation and, and Mayor Moscone's earlier that, you know, from what they knew, there was no reason to be suspicious of this man, and the man that they knew was not the man, apparently, who was down in Guyana. Now, should they have had information? Well, I, I, I don't think, it, I don't think that the, you can say that they should. Um, uh, there were some, some things that they, they could have asked. Uh, uh, this man traveled around with bodyguards, 10 or 12 of them sometimes, and that was certainly suspicious. A man who preaches integration in the city of San Francisco doesn't need 12 bodyguards, that this is not a racist city. Uh, the, uh, uh, the temple had its doors regularly locked. And, and when people came to uh, services, they were often searched. That was certainly very strange. And, and, and all these uh, charges that the Reverend had made for several years about being under a constant harassment campaign by the Ku Klux Klan and the American Nazi Party. My experience of the, the year that I lived here in San Francisco was that neither one of those organizations were, were, had, had any, any, any strong membership in the, in, in the city, or, or in fact, I never even heard it mentioned. I feel that's 
At the same time, Jones wanted People's Temple members to have constant access to Guyanese government officials. So People's Temple purchased a residence in the Guyanese capital, Georgetown. This room had plenty of room for office space as well as a ham radio and enough space to house two dozen members. These members were required to entertain any government leaders that would visit as well as order any necessary supplies such as medicine for Jonestown. Though Jonestown was being built to be self-sustaining, they were still working on figuring out which crops were best to grow. So those living in Georgetown would buy beef, bags of fruit, and fish to have sent to people in Jonestown. Those in Jonestown were in constant need of medical attention. Workers often suffered from heat stroke and dehydration, as well as sprains and injuries from construction. Jonestown needed a doctor, and Jones found one in Larry Schock. Schock was a drug-addicted dropout that got clean through temple services. He always wanted to be a doctor, but with his past of drug addiction, it was unlikely any American medical school would accept him. Jones decided to help Schock by sending him to medical school in Mexico. Once Schock graduated, he was then sent to be certified at the University of California College of Medicine. As soon as he got his certification, he was sent to Jonestown to start work immediately. Even though he was fresh out of medical school, he often had help from experienced temple nurses such as Joyce Beam and Annie Moore. Tim Stone was growing more and more tired with People's Temple while he was in Jonestown. Even though he and John Victor lived in Jonestown together, he was rarely ever able to spend time with him. And with Jones accusing him of such things as being a CIA spy, Tim Stone had enough. On June 12, 1977, Stone flew to New York without permission and then continued to California. There have been moves of all sorts and varieties orchestrated by Mrs. Myrtle. They contacted everyone they can possibly think of contacting. Mr. Stone now in it to save his own ass in spite of his surreptitious note saying that he still shares our goals. No, that's not justification to save your own ass. No way can you justify saving your own ass. How could a man justify who has no children, no one to take care of, how could he possibly justify trying to save himself from a few years in jail? I'm sure some of you would share it, and I'm sure some of you would do exactly what he did. But how would you do so, and how could you do so? How could anyone be so evil as to save themselves at others' expense? The writers of the New West article were an experienced and intimidating team. They knew how to cover their tracks and work quickly. Jones, though he tried, could not figure out who they were talking to and worried that his former attorney, Tim Stone, could be a likely source. Jones wanted to be fully prepared for when the article was released, and since his former attorney had left the temple, and Gene Chaikin was occupied with other issues, he decided to hire Charles Gary, a lawyer who had earned his reputation as chief counsel to the Black Panthers. In May, Jones increased member migration to Jonestown. The initial plan was to send five to six hundred members over the next ten years, but with things changing, he sent that many over within weeks. Members were sent to different airports and would sometimes fly from New York to Guyana or to Florida and take a boat to Guyana. 
The point was so that it was unclear to anyone on the outside how many temple members were leaving for Guyana. A few weeks before the New West article, Jones fled to Jonestown. Though the reasoning was never made public, it's assumed he fled to avoid questioning by New West writers. Jones's son soon followed him to Jonestown. Marcelin, as planned, stayed behind in San Francisco to take care of the temple. When the New West article was finally released, it was far worse than anyone, including Jones, could have imagined. In August 1977, the News West article titled Inside People's Temple was released with the subtitle, Jim Jones is one of the state's most politically potent leaders, but who is he? And what's going on behind his church's locked doors? What followed in the New West article was devastating to People's Temple, but all true. The article started off speaking about Rosalind Carter and how Jones had overtaken her campaign meeting with most of the audience being his own members. It spoke of all the prominent political leaders that Jones was in association with and how he was able to control votes for many politicians. It pointed out all the good deeds Jones had done for those less fortunate and even went into his own background. Then the article took a twist. The writers were able to interview defected temple members and get major insight into the secrets of People's Temple. Those included in giving their statements to New West Magazine were Elmer and Deanna Myrtle, who spoke of giving up everything, including their home, to the temple, and also about their daughter being severely beaten. Bertie Marbell, who spoke of a temple trip where everyone was required to pay $200 and received less than a deplorable bus trip, with people crammed into every spot possible on the buses and having to eat a shared can of cold beans as a meal. Wayne Pitella and Jim and Terry Cobb, who spoke of the fake healings in Jones's fake shooting. Mickey Touche spoke about working in the letters office and writing letters to all top politicians, as well as how much the church took in as far as offerings. Walter Jones, who was put in charge of one of the troubled boys' homes, he spoke of how much money being sent by the government to care for these boys was being funneled through the temple instead of actually being used for care. Laura Cornelius spoke of how much donating was required by members, that they were to give everything they owned and more, how they gave out of fear that they would end up in concentration camps. And what drove her to leave the temple was when Jones brought a snake in and held it against her chest while she screamed in horror. And finally, Grace Stone. Grace shared that she was married to Tim Stone, the temple attorney, and that she was the head counselor for meetings and would pass Jones the names of all the members who needed to be disciplined. She explained that she was also the record keeper for several temple businesses. She kept a log of all documents she had notarized, including power of attorney statements, deeds of trust, and guardianship papers. She explained Jones's need to continue to expand the temple was because of profits, and would go on to speak about how much strain was on members as they had to travel all over on crammed buses to attend the meetings, which would take an entire weekend. She ended her interview speaking of when she left People's Temple. She said she drove to Lake Tahoe and spent the 4th of July weekend lying on the beach trying to relax, but constantly looking over her shoulder to see if any church members had tracked her down. After the interviews, the article went into a brief summary that they titled, Why Jim Jones Should Be Investigated. 
this section summarized that the church should be looked into further for financial fraud, the fear of all temple members planning to leave for Guyana, physical abuse endured by members, and harassment of past members. The article ended with saying, quote, The story of Jim Jones and his people's temple is not over. In fact, it has only begun to be told. If there is any solace to be gained from the tale of exploitation and human foible told by the former temple members in these pages, it is that even such a power as Jim Jones cannot always contain his followers. Promised Land is a cool-down media podcast. All audio clips for Promised Land come from the Jonestown Institute. For more information, visit their website at jonestown.sdsu.edu. Follow us on social media at Promised Land Cast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.